bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing The King and I. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a careless pose and whistle a happy tune, and no one ever knows I'm afraid. The result of this deception is very strange to tell, for when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Make believe you're brave, and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. As is typical of this, the opening segment, I have a few items that I wish to address. I have a correction for you. You know that Charles Nelson Riley ad that I played the last time we got together on the main feed? It was for Banana Ink Crayons, but I got the name of the company wrong. It's not Big, B-I-G, Banana Ink Crayons. It's Bic, B-I-C, Banana Ink Crayons. Of course, Bic, the famous, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> office supply brand. We all know them, so that's my correction. My apologize. Uh, my apologize, Mr. Bick. Here's a bit of bonus trivia regarding Peter Marshall, the star of our last subject, Skyscraper. Peter Marshall was the host of The Hollywood Squares from 1966 through 1981, which would explain his extended absence from Broadway. Mystery solved, and I, I credit the solution to this mystery to Charles Nelson Riley, who refers to Peter Marshall during his big Tony Awards performance. He refers to Peter Marshall as the man who hosts all of the game shows. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the joke reference he makes to Peter, and that got my mind uh, whirring. Oh, the gears, they started to turn, and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to figure out the game shows that Peter hosted. And I believe that the only one he actually did host was the Hollywood Squares. I don't believe there were any other shows beyond that, but hey, uh, the point is we solved the mystery of where Peter went for all of those years, okay? Red Hot Movie Takes, I got him for you. How about this? Nice, short, and sweet. Wonka and The Color Purple are both good. I believe they are both worth your time. They are not instant movie musical classics, and Wonka is better, certainly, than The Color Purple, but if you are on the fence regarding either of these films, if you take my opinion seriously, in any way, uh, please take a moment to watch these films when you get the chance. They're fun! They're not classics, but not every movie has to be a classic, am I right? And hey, how about this? We just celebrated our fifth anniversary on January 2nd. Oh my god, Patty and Betty, <laughs> are we wearing little hats? Little party hats? Yes, we are. They're conical shaped. They're not director's hats. They're party hats, because this is our official celebration of the fifth anniversary of the musical man 
My God, one, two, three, four, five years. Ah, ah, ah. Thank you so much for listening each and every time we get together. I know it's not each and every week. We do try to... <laughs> have these have these episodes come out as regularly as possible. But if you've stuck with us for this long, we hope you stick with us through the rest of this journey. Hey, this particular episode has been in the works for quite some time. Did I say episode? Did I pronounce episode in a strange way? Patty and Biddy are giving me the eh, maybe hand gesture. So, but it, here's my point. We have been working on this particular episode for quite some time. And I believe it is time we got started. This is a big one. The King and I, we have so much to talk about. Show me the show facts. That's the first thing we got to do. Okay, show me the show facts. You say, well, all right. I say to you, let's do it. Let's go. The King and I was the 1952 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 29th, 1951 at the St. James Theater and ran for 1,246 performances. As of this recording, the King and I is the 85th longest-running production in Broadway history. Promises Promises is number 84 with 1,281 performances. And the 1965 Abe Burroughs play Cactus Flower is number 86 with 1,234 performances. Cactus Flower was a Lauren Bacall vehicle. Hello, Lauren Bacall. We talked about you recently. The book and lyrics of The King and I are brought to us by Oscar Hammerstein II and the music is brought to us by Richard Rogers. Today's subject is based on Anna and the King of Siam, a 1944 novel by Margaret Landon that was itself based on a pair of memoirs by Anna Leon Owens. The first memoir, The English Governess at the Siamese Court, was published in 1870, while the second, The Romance of the Harem, was published in 1872. In both the memoirs and the novel, Anna recounts her experiences with King Monku, who ruled Siam, now Thailand, from 1851 through 1868. In 1946, a film adaptation of Margaret Landon's novel, starring Irene Dunn and Rex Harrison, raked in $3.5 million at the box office. That would be just over $55 million in today's dollars. <laughs> dollars! Dollars! Rogers and Hammerstein saw the picture and agreed it would make a fine musical, but the seeds for this project had already been planted by their wives. Dorothy Rogers and Dorothy Hammerstein, the Dorothys, were fans of Landon's novel and the first to propose a musical adaptation. Additionally, Gertrude Lawrence and her manager, Fanny Holtzman, approached Rogers and Hammerstein with their own pitch for adapting the novel. Lawrence, who had previously found success on Broadway and the West End, was currently feeling down and out as an actress. She was hungry, hungry for a star vehicle. And after watching the Rex Harrison film, she encouraged Fanny to purchase the stage rights to Landon's novel. To be clear, if anyone was going to turn this book into a musical, they were going to be hired by Fanny. She was the boss when push came to shove. From Wikipedia, quote, Fanny's friends and clients included Louis B. Mayer, Fred Astaire, Noel Coward, Danny Kay, King George V, the Romanovs, Winston Churchill, King George II of Greece, Dwight Eisenhower, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Quote, Goddamn, Fanny! 
Fanny initially approached Cole Porter about writing the score, but Porter declined. Oh no! Fanny's second choice was Noel Coward, but before she could arrange a meeting with him, she ran into Dorothy Rogers and Dorothy Hammerstein. Tell your husbands to write this musical, Fanny said. And we, <laughs> we already have, is what, the, is what the Dorothys cried out. My God, Fanny! The director of the original Broadway production of The King and I was John Van Druten, musical director Friedrich Devonk, orchestrations Robert Russell Bennett, choreographer Jerome Robbins, the one and only, scenic design Joe Milsner, lighting design Joe Two Checks Milsner. You know we love a two-check, <laughs> a two-check opportunity. Joe, congratulations. Sound design, N.A., no sound design. Costume design, Irene Sharoff, and the original Broadway cast was as follows. We begin with Yul Brenner. Remember the shout-out he received in the score of Skyscraper? Here he is, in the flesh. Gertrude Lawrence is next. Lawrence and Dorothy Hammerstein first met as co-stars in Andre Charlotte's Review of 1924, which ran on Broadway for 298 performances. We continue with Doretta Morrow. Now, before rehearsals began, Doretta, who had been cast as Tup Tim, was made to perform the score in its entirety for Gertrude Lawrence, who felt the material had been written to emphasize her deficiencies as a singer. She was not that impressed with the results. Rogers and Hammerstein were not fans of Lawrence's voice, so she may have been on to something there. We'll circle back to all of this drama in a minute. We have to continue with this cast. We have Dorothy Sarnoff, Stephanie Augustine, Doria Avila, Jamie Bauer, Lee Becker, Mary Bird, Dwayne Camp, Joseph Caruso, Raul Salada, Chris... Oh, Cristanta, yes. Cristanta Cornejo, Rodolfo Cornejo, Robert Cort... Cortisol, Robert Cortisol, yes. Robin Craven, Bo Cunningham, Gomez de Lapa, Andrea del Rosario, Larry Douglas, Shalee Farrell, Charles Francis, Marilyn Gennaro, Evelyn Giles, Tommy Gomez, Leonard Graves, Thomas Griffin, Geraldine Hamburg, Maribel Hammer, Marsha James. Hey, hey, let's just take a break. <laughs> My God, this cast list is so long, it's a total of 60 actors, and I just gave you the first 30. <laughs> and that includes Brenner and Lawrence. My God, I'm swimming. How are you doing? How are you doing? How are the kids? Oh, really? Oh, an A+, plus, you say. Okay, let's get back to the cast. Margie James, John Giuliano, Sandy Kennedy, Ruth Corda, Ina Curland, Suzanne Lake, Norma Larkin, Miriam Lawrence, Bayork Lee, Barbara Luna, Nancy Lynch, Alfonso Maribo, James Maribo, Gloria Marlowe, Jack Matthew, Carolyn May, Len Mentz, Helen Merritt, Machico, Helen Muriel, Ed Preston, Orlando Rodriguez, Corrine St. Denise, Johnny Stewart, Nora Suarez, Prue Ward, Bonnie Warner, Phyllis Wilcox, Dusty Worrell, and last but certainly not least, Eureka! And Eureka, that's all of our stars, 60 actors, wow, that's just over two big baseball teams. That is exactly four basketball teams. That's uh, 60 golfers, okay? Now, regarding Gertrude Lawrence. Lawrence's health was a consistent concern throughout the development of this week's subject. She frequently withdrew from performances due to exhaustion, bronchitis, and pleurisy, which caused the membranes associated with her lungs and chest cavity to become inflamed. That's what pleurisy is. The physical demands of the show only made matters worse. 
Lawrence was expected to wear a 75-pound dress and walk or dance a total of four miles over the course of a three-and-a-half-hour performance. She did this eight times a week. When her performance inevitably began to suffer, Rodgers and Hammerstein, who had never wanted to work with Lawrence in the first place, preferring to make stars rather than hire them, drafted a letter to the actress that emphasized how she was, quote, losing the respect of 1,500 people eight times a week. Quote, the letter was never sent, and thank God for that. Lawrence fainted after a matinee on August 16, 1952, slipped into a coma shortly thereafter, and died at the age of 54 on September 6, 1952. An autopsy confirmed liver cancer as the cause of death. Regarding Yul Brenner, the team's first choice for the part of the king was Rex Harrison, who was booked. He was busy. Their second choice, Noel Coward, who was also booked. Busy. Their third choice, Alfred Drake of Oklahoma and Kismet fame. His contractual demands were, quote, too demanding. Quote, I should say he would go on to do Kismet. He had not already done Kismet, but he was the original Curly in Oklahoma. Mary Martin, the star of Rodgers and Hammerstein's most recent hit, South Pacific, encouraged Yul Brenner to audition for the role of the king. Martin and Brenner had previously appeared together in the 1946 musical Loot Song, that's L-U-T-E, Loot Song, which ran for 142 performances. During his audition for The King and I, Brenner reportedly sat cross-legged on the stage of the St. James Theater, and per Richard Rogers, quote, Brenner plucked, plunked, I should say plunked, one whacking chord on his guitar, brung, and began to howl in a strange language that no one could understand. We had our king. Quote, Brenner stated that Rogers' account was, quote, picaresque, but totally inaccurate. Quote, Brenner would go on to play the king 4,625 times. Though he often boasted about never missing a performance, records show this is not true. Appendicitis and a minor onstage accident forced Brenner to temporarily step down, and the aforementioned Alfred Drake stood in for him on a number of occasions. I guess those contract demands went out the window once Alfred saw how popular the show was. Brenner's 4,625th performance proved to be his last. It occurred, uncharacteristically for Broadway, on a Sunday night, June 30th, 1985. Sunday nights are typically a dark period for Broadway shows, so if anyone can shed some light on this, why they would have been performing, why they would have been performing on a Sunday night, I would appreciate the help of the insight. Speak, speak, why is your head higher than mine? On October 10th, 1985, Brenner died as a result of lung cancer. He received a special posthumous Tony Award that same year. Now, Tony nods for The King and I, the winner. It was the winner of the Best Musical Tony, of course, but also the winner of Best Actress in a Musical, Gertrude Lawrence. Hey, you know who the winner of Best Actress in a Play was that year? Julie Harris in I Am a Camera. It's true. We also have Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Yul Brenner, Best Scenic Design, Joe Milsner, and Best Costume. Costume design, Irene Sheriff. That's, or maybe Sheriff. I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these first or last names. I do try my best. So that's five awards when all was said and done. Any additional nominations or considerations would have been kept from the public at that time because everything was a dang secret back then. They kept all of that info behind closed doors. We were banging on the door saying, give us, give us, give us the information. And eventually they did.
Here, let's talk about the plot, huh? Why not? I would like to say before we get into this plot summary of ours that pronunciations have been provided by Dana Inkantanawat, who recorded an audio tutorial for IDEA, the International Dialects of English Archive. Dana is not a fan of the musical. They interview her about the musical and her feelings. She's not a fan of it, and I do, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. Dana, I hear ya. I, I'm right there with ya. Act one. The time, 1862. The place, Bangkok, Siam. Anna Leon Owens and her son, Louis, have just arrived after a voyage from their native land of England. Anna has been hired by the King of Siam to serve as a school teacher, a position she aims to keep for the sake of supporting Louis. Her husband, Tom, recently died. Securing steady employment as a woman in the 1860s is, as you might expect, not easy, which means Anna has to make this work. Do me a favor, don't worry about Louis. Louis will not come up again during this plot summary. Everybody loves Louis from Sunday in the Park with George, and no one gives a shit about Louis from The King and I. They look horrible, don't they, mummy? Shut the hell up, you mewling prat. Anna and her mewling prat are received by the Kula Om, the king's right-hand man. He shall escort them to the palace where they are expected to live. I should say that the Kula Om is also referred to as the prime minister in the show. Our heroine is aghast at the idea of living in the palace. According to her contract, the king must provide her with a brick house that adjoins the palace. The contract has not been honored. Nonetheless, Anna agrees to follow the Kula Om, as she is determined to hold up her end of the bargain. Weeks pass. Anna is furious. Why have I yet to meet the king, she asks. Where are the children I am meant to teach, and where is my house? The Kula Om is unmoved by the quantity and volume of Anna's complaints. The king is very busy, he explains with a sniff. In another corner of the palace, a slave named Tuptim arrives with a scholar named Lunta. Tuptim is a gift from the king of Burma, now Myanmar. She is the latest addition to the king's ever-expanding harem of wives. But here's the rub, dear listener. Tuptim is in love with Lunta. Theirs is a secret love, a forbidden love. More on this in a moment. Anna's first encounter with the king does not go well. He commands her to remain in the palace and begin teaching immediately. Anna is like, uh, house, dummy. And the king is like, uh, teach, stupid. You're so stupid. You're so stupid. During a geography lesson, the king's children are astonished to learn Siam is much smaller than they were led to believe. Could this be fake news, they ask? Prince Chulalung Khan, the heir to the throne, cries foul. He says, this is fake news. The king orders everyone to shut up and honor Anna's lessons. Anna is pleased. The king then orders Anna to stop acting like his equal and accept her role as a servant. Anna is not pleased. So not pleased, in fact, that she decides to leave Siam. Anna is visited by Lady Tiang, the king's head wife. Tiang believes her husband is a good man who simply has a lot on his mind. Case in point, it is rumored that the British, believing the king to be a barbarian, will soon take steps to conquer Siam. Anna is disturbed by this possibility. She meets with the king, who explains that an envoy from England is already on their way to assess the stability and civility of Siam. 
Anna devises a plan to receive the envoy in classic European style. The king's wives will wear the latest Western fashions. Tuck Tim, having recently read Uncle Tom's Cabin, will stage the book as a play. There is much to do, but plenty of time. A whole week. No need to worry. Uh, wait, no. <laughs> Sorry, they only have 18 hours. Every need to worry. The British are not only coming, they are here and they want their tea and biscuits. The king leads everyone in a prayer before Buddha. He asks for guidance and success before vowing to build a house for Anna. Anna is like, hmm, thank you very much. Act 2. The British envoy, Sir Edward Ramsay, is brought before the king's wives who have mastered the art of dressing like Europeans. Well, almost. No one, no one thought to give them European undergarments, which means they are nearly naked, underneath their gowns. When Ramsay peers at the women through his monocle, they proceed to flee from the evil eye with their skirts over their heads. Oh, the hilarity. Let's move on. Here's some tea for you, listener. Anna and Ramsay used to be something of an item before she married Tom. Oh, they dance. Oh, they flirt. Sir Ramsay compels Anna to leave Siam and return to England. The king interrupts their tete-a-tete. No dancing until after dinner, he says. Tuptim and Lun Ta agree to leave the palace after her performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin. They inform Anna, who has known all along about their clandestine affair, and she wishes them good luck. Does the play go off without a hitch? Uh, yeah, more or less. Sir Ramsay departs, assuring the king he has nothing to fear from the British. And to that I say, yeah, right. The king presents Anna with a ring as a demonstration of his gratitude, and a great sense of peace falls over the palace for about 60 seconds. The king's secret police arrive with a report. Tim and Lun Ta have vanished. The king suspects Anna knows more about this than she lets on. Anna is dismissive. Ah, what do you care if Tuck Tim ran away from Loon Ta? Ran away with Loon Ta. You literally have a thousand wives. If you promise to calm down, I'll teach you how to dance the polka. During their dance, Anna and the king are shocked to find they have fallen in love with each other. Ah, but this love cannot be expressed. Theirs is a forbidden love, a secret love. The Kula Om enters with Tuptim. As the police continue their search for Lun Ta, the king prepares to lash Tuptim with a whip. Anna objects. Stop! The king asserts that he is the ruler of Siam, not some schoolteacher. But when the time comes, the king cannot bring himself to strike Tuptim. He becomes distressed and runs from the room. What's this? My god, Lun Ta has been found dead! Tuptim becomes suicidal and is taken away, never to be seen again. Ciao, Tuptim! Uh, a director's cap, bit of commentary, a bit of director's cap commentary I'm wearing. My director's cap. Upon learning Lun Ta is dead, Tuptim should attempt to murder the king by stealing a weapon from one of her captors. I can't be the first person to come up with this idea, right? It's a good idea. Back to the plot. Anna tells the Kula Om to give her ring back to the king. The Kula Om says, I wish you had never come to Siam. And Anna is like, honestly, same. Weeks pass. Anna is just about ready to leave Siam when Prince Chulalung Khan arrives with a letter. Paraphrased, quote, Dear Miss Anna, I am dying. Signed, the king. Quote, Anna goes to the king, who asks her to remain in Siam and advise Chulalung Khan in his new role as ruler. The children second this emotion. Please do not go, Miss Anna. We love you so very much. 
Anna agrees to stay, and the king dies. To be clear, I do think the king dies because he cannot reconcile his beliefs with those of the European Western world. Men will literally force themselves to die if it means not going to therapy. It's a crying shame. Oh, I should point out this incredibly condescending remark Anna makes about the king near the end of Act 2. Louis says something like, He always frightened me, mother. And Anna is like, Well, I'm sure you would have been friends if you'd only known him better. In many ways, he was just as young as you. Shut the fuck up, Anna. Jesus Christ. I thought you said you uh, weren't going to mention Louis again. Sorry, not sorry. And for the purposes of this week's episode, I began by reading the 1870 Anna Leon Owens memoir, The English Governess at the Siamese Court. The chief differences between the events of the memoir and those of the musical are as follows. Anna and King Monku do not fall in love in the memoir, and Monku does not die because Anna shook his ass with woke politics. As far as the memoir is concerned, I knew I was in trouble on page one. If I may quote from page one, quote, I rose before the sun and ran on deck to catch an early glimpse of the strange land we were nearing. And as I peered eagerly, not through mist and haze, but straight into the clear, bright, many-tinted ether, there came the first faint, tremulous blush of dawn behind her rosy veil, and presently the welcome face shines boldly out, glad, glorious, beautiful, and aureoled with flaming hues of orange, fringed with amber and gold, wherefrom flossy webs of color float wide through the sky, paling as they go, quote, enough already. Throughout the memoir, Anna switches between three distinct personas, the poet, the tour guide slash historian, and the racist. Her overwrought depiction of the sun, which I just relayed to you, is an excellent example of the poet at work. I skipped entire chapters because tour guide Anna could not stop describing the layout of every room she happened to enter. The table was over here, the door was over there, etc., 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 and her lectures on Siamese history are just as dull, if not more so. Anna only really lights up as a writer when it's time to get racist. She obviously detests the people of Siam and is constantly comparing them to animals. Here is a complete list of examples. Quote, In a moment, the river was alive with nondescript craft, worked by amphibious creatures, half-naked, swarthy, and grim, who rent the air with shrill, wild jargon as they scrambled toward us. Quote, here's another one. Quote, the Siamese official was followed by a dozen attendants who, the moment they stepped from the gangway, sprawled on the deck like huge toads. Quote, here's another one. Quote, under the eaves on all sides, human heads were packed. On every head, its cherished tuft of hair, like a stiff black brush, inverted. In every mouth, its delicious cud of areca nut and beetle, which the human cattle ruminated with industrious content. 
Quote, here is one more for you. Quote, hardly were we installed in our apartments when, with a pell-mell rush and screams of laughter, the ladies of His Excellency's private Utah reconnoitered us in force. Crowding in through the half-open door, they scrambled for me with eager curiosity, all trying at once to embrace me boisterously and promiscuously chattering in shrill Siamese, a bedlam of parrots. Quote, Question, how does one chatter promiscuously in shrill Siamese? That's a, that's one of several questions I have for the real Anna Leon Owens. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, we're not done. Sorry, I thought we were done with the racist animal comparisons. No, we have two more. Quote, again, they swarmed about me like bees. Quote, and here's the last one, quote, Undeterred and deliberate, we lingered yet a little over that famous breakfast, then rose and prepared to follow the mechanical old ape. Quote, and here are just a couple of other notable passages that I wrote down from the memoir. Quote, Two or three of the younger girls satisfied my Western ideas of beauty with their clear, mellow, olive complexions and their almond-shaped eyes so dark yet glowing. Those among them who were really old were simply hideous and repulsive. Quote, and I apologize again. I said that I had maybe two more passages for you. I have three in total. Here is the second of those three. Quote, in common with most of the Asiatic races, the Siamese are apt to be indolent, indolent, I should say, indolent, improvident, greedy, intemperate, servile, cruel, vain, inquisitive, superstitious, and cowardly. But individual variations from the more repulsive types are happily not rare. Quote, and then I just, I wrote this down. This is the final quote from the memoir. Quote, it was such filthy filth, so monstrous in quantity and kind. Quote, filthy filth. Did this person not have an editor of any kind? Did we take the rough draft and take it right to the printing presses? Filthy filth, my God. I followed this. No, I should say I did not Follow that up with the 1872 memoir, The Romance of the Harem, by Anna Leon Owens. I skipped it. I did have a copy. I had a copy of this in my hands, and it fell out of my hands almost instantly. I wouldn't feel bad, Anna. A lot of writers decide to cash in with a shitty derivative sequel. See, Annie Warbucks. See, Bring Back Birdie. See, Love Never Dies. See, Snoopy the Musical. See, Miss Saigon Goes to Paris. So, if I didn't read that, what was my next research source? Well, that's Anna and the King of Siam by Margaret Landon, the 1944 novel that is based on those two memoirs. Notably, Landon was not invited to the opening night of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical. What's the story there, I wonder? The tea, the tea! My kingdom for the tea! The most I can say about the novel is that it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot more coherent and digestible than the memoirs on which it is based. A compliment that should be ascribed to Landon's college roommate, Muriel Fuller. Muriel's advice to Landon was as follows, quote, omit the long discussions and descriptions. They only bore people who aren't students of Siamese history Quote, well said, Muriel, well said. The novel is incredibly racist in its own right. All of the animal comparisons are replicated here along with a fresh batch of entirely original insults. Every white person Anna meets is automatically granted
represented the dignity of personhood, while every person of color is viewed as an interchangeable mongrel. The Siamese are guilty of being ugly, stupid, obscene, and or corrupt until proven innocent. The only difference between the Anna we meet in the memoirs and the Anna we meet in the novel is that memoir Anna is a vicious and enthusiastic bigot, whereas novel Anna is more of a disaffected snob. Novel Anna wouldn't say the N-word out loud, but memoir Anna absolutely would if that helps. Novel Anna is presented as a fierce abolitionist who takes advantage of slave labor whenever the opportunity arises. It's the most hilarious hypocrisy I've ever laid my eyes on. Oh, I detest slavery. I root for the emancipation of my black brothers and sisters in America. Ha ha ha, yes I do. Now, that said, my house is in a right state. I, well, I suppose I could pluck around 10 to 20 slaves from the palace and put them to work when in Rome, am I right? Do not dawdle, my slaves. Was that a good enough clap? That's better. If you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. I did my best to engage with Anna and the King of Siam. This is the 1946 Irene Dunn-Rex Harrison film. I watched enough of this, uh, just about, uh, just a little over 20 minutes, to confirm Rex Harrison is the whitest motherfucker to ever walk the earth. After that, I felt no desire to watch him mince and sneer and squint for an additional 100 minutes. Ho, ho, ho! That's how he sounds. He's doing this awful voice. Ho, ho, ho! No thanks, Rex. Goodbye, Rex. Ho, ho, ho! Your Majesty, I present new English governess, Mrs. Anna Owens and son Louis. How many grandchildren shall you have by now? How many? How many? How many? Ah, you do not answer that so quick. I make better questions than you make answers, hmm? Dog my die. Ma'am, dog my die. <laughs> As a reminder, this is the movie Gertrude Lawrence and Rogers and Hammerstein liked. It was a different time, you would say. Oh, I know, motherfucker. I know. Trust. A very different time. Ho, ho, ho. I am squinting. Yeah, good for you. Fuck you. I, <laughs> now let's talk about some actual musical sources. I listened to the 1951 original Broadway cast album, which stars Gertrude Lawrence and Yul Brenner, of course. The album feels incomplete in more ways than one. Lawrence's pale and tremulous voice informs a similarly ill-at-ease performance. The recording limits of the era result in several numbers being reduced or cut. Adios, Western people funny. Sayonara, the small house of Uncle Thomas. And the orchestra doesn't sound nearly as fleshed out or lusty as it should. We had nowhere to go but up from here, is what I say. I then watched, rewatched the 1956 live-action motion picture, The King and I, which stars Deborah Kerr and Yul Brenner. But we should also cite Mamie Nixon, who provides, is that right? Is that right? Marnie! No, is that, oh no, Marnie Nixon? Yes, Marnie Nixon, not Mamie. Marnie Nixon provides vocals for the film. Deborah Kerr is not singing. Oh, we're doing, a, we're doing an old-school Hollywood trick, bringing in someone else to do the songs. Rita Marino plays Tup Tim in this film, and I will let her speak to that experience. The following audio is from a 1980s interview I found on YouTube. Patty, Benny, can we play that, please? That wasn't Hispanic, but it was another dark-skinned, dusky-skinned beauty. Um, in fact, I remember I was a contract player at Fox, and so was Franz Nguyen. 
beautiful, beautiful girl who was part Vietnamese and part French, who would really have been, it would seem to me, more right physically for it. She was just breathtaking. And in fact, I thought she would get it. But maybe it's because she didn't have any kind of a musical background, because I know she screen tested for it. I was a contract player, and I got it. No, she was not a contract player at the time. That's the other reason. They tried to use their people. And uh, I, at that time, seemed like the most likely choice. You know, I was the, I was the equal opportunity, all-around um, ethnic person for a long time. Did you want that role? Oh, yeah, I really did. I thought it was a beaut. I had seen it in New York. I had seen the Broadway production, and I was just... When I was um, tested for it, I, I must have lit every candle. I lit my fingertips, you know, everything, to, to, in, in the hopes that I would get that role, because it was also <clears throat> a very, very important film. And as it turned out, when it came out, it, was, it remained a very, very important film and uh, won many awards, and it was gorgeous, and it's a classic. I saw it recently, and it's every bit as good now, if not better, than when it first came out. So I was thrilled to be part of this huge endeavor. And it's where I met Jerome Robbins, who did all the staging for the musical numbers, and it's because of him, really, that I ended up doing West Side Story. All right, you heard it from her, right from her. Fair enough, Rita, fair enough. The film and all other adaptations of Anna's memoirs are banned in Thailand due to their depiction of King Mungku and the Thai royal family. I'm not here to condone censorship, but I understand the instinct in this case. The material is insulting. I get that it's an insult. I had to purchase a DVD of this film as it is not available to rent, stream or purchase digitally. No way, no how, no shape, no in no shape or form. It's a cliche at this point, but seriously, hold on to your physical media. You never know when it's gonna vanish off the face of the earth. But whatever you do, do not buy the DVD I bought, the one that is currently being sold through Amazon, as it is most likely either a bootleg or just some sort of, it's a low quality Korean release, if anything. Trust me on this. Chris and I grew to accept the aspect ratio, which crops the film on all sides, bars on all sides to create a claustrophobic picture frame effect. And we got used to the video quality, which mutates every pattern into a radioactive kaleidoscope, but that should never have been a requirement, and I don't want you to go through that. This is The King and I, after all, not some obscure full-motion video game from 1996. And watching this Korean import DVD, that's what you're getting, okay? I then listened to the 1964 Lincoln Center cast album, which stars Risa Stevens and Darren McGavin. We're cooking with gas as far as the orchestra is concerned, and Risa Stevens is a big step up from Gertrude Lawrence, even if her operatic vibrato makes her sound like Tiny Tim on occasion. Tiny Tim, you remember Tiny Tim. I'm almost certain we featured Living in the Sunlight, Loving in the Moonlight in our episode on SpongeBob SquarePants. Look it up if you're unfamiliar. My only real issue with this recording is Darren McGavin, who very nearly falls apart during his performance of A Puzzlement. His voice cracks and croaks several times, and his self-conscious laughter only shines a light on the problem. Do you need a minute, Mr. McGavin? A cough drop? A tissue? A glass of water? Why do you sound less like Yul Brenner and more like Zero Mostel in Fiddler on the Roof? I did... 
<laughs> I did not engage with the 1972 CBS television series Anna and the King, which stars Samantha Egger and our old friend, Yul Brenner. He did it for CBS. Oh my God. This was a TV sitcom. A non-English dub of the pilot episode has, ooh, ooh, it was on YouTube, but it has been scrubbed along with the original CBS promos. Oh, no, wait, no, I'm, I'm sorry. We did manage to find the promo I really like. Let's play that promo. Wanna see some nice pictures? meets West and loves it. In Siam, we have a form of democracy known as absolute monarchy. Anna and the King, East meets West and loves it. Are you trying to fuck me? Calm down. Episode titles from this series include The Haunted Temple and The King and the Egg. I want to see that episode. The King and the Egg? <laughs> oh my god. Margaret Landon, the author of the novel, filed a copyright infringement suit against CBS, citing the, quote, inaccurate and mutilated portrayal, quote, of her characters. She lost that suit and the show was canceled mid-season. Womp womp. I then listened to the 1977 Broadway revival cast album, which stars Constance Towers and... Yul Brenner, you know it. You better get out of Yul Brenner's way, cause Brenner's back on Broadway, you bastards. I'll fight him in the streets, he says. I'll give him the old etc, etc, etc. You better get out of Yul Brenner's way. You better, Yul Brenner, you better. On the opening night of this revival, <laughs> Brenner was suffering from laryngitis and could not speak or sing. Those duties went to the actor's son, Rock Brenner, and Yule lip-synced his entire performance. I have a feeling people in the audience noticed. <laughs> Constance Towers is the indisputable standout here. Her voice finds the common ground between musical theater and opera that Lawrence and Stevens were unable to locate, and her portrait of Anna is well-drawn in any mode, from the wistful romantic and doting matriarch to the king's brooding rival. She is so good. Yul Brenner is also quite good. I hate to say as much because the role of the king has always been rotten, but he'd done it a million times by 1977, and he brings a lot of gravity and pathos to the table. I can see how people fell for him. The King and I is a dreadfully insidious musical, and I admit to being a white schmuck. I also listened to the 1992 studio cast album, which stars Julie Andrews and Ben Kingsley. Kingsley continues the fine theatrical tradition of anyone can play the King of Siam, so long as they sell tickets and or move units. Yul Brenner is Russian? Fine. Darren McGavin's uh, mother was a white Canadian? Fine. Ben Kingsley is half Indian? Fine. Christopher Lee is 100% straight fucking English? Fine. W well, wait. His maternal great-grandfather was Italian. That counts. Lou Diamond Phillips is Filipino. Martin Vidnovic is Serbian. Ken Watanabe is Japanese. Fine, fine, fine. I want to stick up for this album, if only for the sake of Andrews, who unsurprisingly slips into 
into the role of Anna as if it had been written for her, but the presence of a certain actor whose name I shall reveal forthwith makes it impossible for me to do so. I also watched the 1993 documentary The King and I, recording a Hollywood dream, which is available in full on YouTube. The special, the special, the TV special, the documentary chronicles the recording of the 1992 studio album I just mentioned, the one that stars Julie Andrews and Ben Kingsley. Recording a Hollywood Dream isn't so much a warts and all documentary as it is a commercial for the album and a circle jerk opportunity for the various performers. And oh boy, the performers we have on hand for this thing. Yeah boy, hacha, whoopee! Hiring Peebo Bryson to play Lunta is demented, but Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen as the Kula Om? That's nothing short of psychotic. Marilyn Horn as Lady Tiang. Holy moly. The only bit of casting that makes sense beyond Andrews, of course, is Roger Moore as Sir Ramsey. I won't say a word against Leah Salonga, but you know the people who put this together gave themselves credit for being in the ballpark, so to speak. Leah's Filipino, right? Asia, baby, close enough. See, the great thing about Leah is that she can play anything. Vietnamese, tie the whole menu you can order a la carte you know that's how they thought about it circling back to my alarmingly sophisticated circle jerk comment there comes a point when the praise we choose to heap upon someone no longer elevates but flattens them, and that is what we did to Julie Andrews. We refused to see her as anything less than perfect, and we made her less interesting as a result. Let people be real. Talk about them as if they were made of flesh and blood. Stop telling me Julie Andrews is a saint, and tell me about the time she ripped ass in front of you. Ben Kingsley's son, his son plays Louie, and Julie is kicking that kid into the rafters. I won't play any audio, as that would be, you know, cruel, but let's just say this kid sounds supremely uncomfortable. Okay, I'll do an impression for you. Mother, it's the boat. It's time to go. Let me try that again. Mother, it's the boat. It's time to go. The flattest delivery you could ever imagine. I also... <laughs> <laughs> Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. 1994 brought us the studio cast album starring Valerie Masterson and Christopher Lee. Yes, that's right, I listened to it. <laughs> Christopher Sauron Lee, Count Dooku, Lord Summer Isle, Count Dracula himself, Miguel, in the 1975 TV movie Captain America 2, Death Too Soon. Christopher Lee also played Chung King in The Terror of the Tongs, Ling Chu in The Devil's Daffodil, and Fu Manchu in The Face of Fu Manchu, The Brides of Fu Manchu, The Vengeance of Fu Manchu, The Blood of Fu Manchu, and The Castle of Fu Manchu. The man had a lot of experience playing Asian characters. This would not have been new for him. Remember, I was paid by Second City to play a wacky Asian hibachi chef. 
and I only asked for the sketch to be removed halfway through my contract. So when I condemn these people for their cowardice, I am also condemning myself. Bert Fink's liner notes for this studio album provide a great deal of info regarding the history of The King and I, and I am grateful for that, but he does an objectively terrible job of commemorating or contextualizing this particular recording. Fink can hardly bring himself to acknowledge its existence, glibly referring to it as, quote, this complete recording, quote, as part of a larger thought. That's the only direct reference he makes. And though he goes out of his way to cite the many, many people who have played Anna and the King over the years, including, I want to say, yes, Betty White and Florence Henderson, it's a very long list. Fink does not mention Masterson or Lee by name. You fell down on the job, Bert Fink. Pretty fucked up, Bert Fink. Lee stinks as the King. He stinks. He stinks and everyone else is fine or mediocre. And I get the appeal of a complete recording, but this thing is two hours long. The Dying King bullies Anna into a reprise of I, of I Whistle a Happy Tune. I mean, cut the cord already. I gotta pee. I continued by listening to the 1996 Broadway Revival cast album, which stars Donna Murphy and Lou Diamond Phillips, the revival that dared to ask, what if we had the company scream incessantly over a truncated version of the overture. Would our audience love that? Various changes have been made to mix up the vocal arrangements and expand upon certain numbers. None of them radical and none of them enlightening. L.D. Oh, Lou Diamond Phillips. L.D. That's in my notes. L.D. Phillips sounds over-caffeinated in the book scenes, while Murphy adds far too much milk, honey, cream, and sugar to the songs. At the time, she would have most recently appeared on Broadway in Passion, playing the moody and ephemeral Fosca. Fosca? Fosca. And she seems quite determined to prove she can hack it as a loving matriarch. No, no, I've thought about this a lot. Trust me, I can totally be normal and nice. There is blood to be drawn from that stone. Easier said than done, Donna. Then again, this revival ran for seven 180 performances. So, who am I to talk? Now, in regards to the 1999 animated motion picture, The King and I, which was released in March of 1999, uh, this film stars Miranda Richardson and Christiane Knoll on vocals, as well as Martin Vid Novak. Uh, okay, so in regards to this film, I have nothing to say right now because a commentary for this film will be released next week via Patreon. Oh, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Oh, all you have to do is give us a dollar a month and you'll have access to that commentary. This is from the same studio that gave us The Swan Princess, Alpha and Omega, The Scarecrow, Alpha and Omega 2 through 8, and The Swan Princess 2 through 12. It's going to be a disaster. It's a rewatch for me. I saw it Oh, a very long time ago, but I'm looking forward to how bad it's going to be. Note, though it is technically available to watch for free via Freevee, we will be renting the film The King and I, 1999, through Amazon for the sake of avoiding ads. We're renting it. You have to pay. You have to pay the money. Rent it. Commentaries tend to fall apart when they are constantly interrupted by commercials. Right? You agree with me? I did not watch the 1999 film Anna and the King, which stars Jodie Foster and Chow Yun-Fat. That was released in December of 1999. I did not watch it. Let's be real. I was never 
going to watch this motion picture. We really overestimated the demand for adaptations of The King and I by releasing two in the same year, March and December. No, no, the people will come. They will. They must. I listened to the 2015 Broadway Revival cast album, which stars Kelly O'Hara and Ken Watanabe, as well as Cream Pie Cutie Conrad Ricamora as Lun Ta, his Broadway debut. Hey, congratulations. Far and away the best recording, oh, by far, as well calibrated as this material is ever likely to be. Watanabe is a down-to-earth king, and O'Hara kind of puts Julie Andrews to shame. Julie Andrews was my uh, peak Anna performance for a bit, for a minute, but Kelly O'Hara came along and dethroned her. A sacrilegious comment, you say. Ah, and I'd say it again. O'Hara is mother. She does not have to try to be mother. She has not been told it is her long withheld destiny to be mother. She is simply mother, the Alpha and Omega. Speaking of Alpha and Omega, does anyone, has anyone got a reference for that film series? That's a film series. Finally, I watched the 2018 London Revival cast, The Pro Shot. I believe that is at the London Palladium. This also stars Kelly O'Hara and Ken Watanabe. This was provided to me by patron Elizabeth, as it is also unavailable to stream, rent, or purchase anywhere. Serious question, is something going on over at the Rogers and Hammerstein estate? Why are we keeping all of this material behind closed doors? Having dead-eyed Thai people moving as one, lurching toward Anna and Louie with inscrutable intent is a weird staging choice, no matter how you contextualize it. That's my first observation regarding this pro shot. Now, uh, here's, a, here's a joke that I wrote down from the show. I was, I was flabbergasted by this. So, Kula Ohm says to Anna, in the very first opening scenes of the show, he says, King very busy now. New Year's celebration just finishing. Fireworks every night. Cremation of late queen just starting. And in response to this information, Anna says, Oh, you've just lost your queen. I'm so sorry. When did she die? And the Kula Ohm replies by saying, Four years ago. And the audience in this pro shot, they laugh. Oh, how they tee-hee. This joke betrays the Western skepticism at the core of this material. The King and I has never been about people from different cultures coming together and learning from each other. Don't believe anyone who says that. 90% of the humor is derived from mocking Thai language and customs, and it really sucks. Oh, <laughs> Tup Tim said Ohio as Oh, he ha ha Shut the fuck up. This revival makes it clear in Act 1 that... Oh, this is very interesting to me. This revival makes it clear in Act 1 that the king is suffering from heart disease of some sort. He's clutching at his arm and chest. It's impossible to miss. He then experiences a massive heart attack in Act 2, moments before lashing Tuptim with a whip. I like this a lot more than the king chooses to die after Anna threatens him with a cancellation notice. I'm gonna cancel you, the king! I'm gonna cancel you, the king! Oh, well, really? Oh, I'm dying! <laughs> Bye, gotta go. I have no idea why they chose to age up Chulalum Khan from 10-ish to 17-ish for the purposes of this revival, but 
None of the dialogue has aged up with him. So we've got this balding man talking like a 10-year-old. Very strange. Now, before we get into the score, I cannot believe we're finally here. I will throw this tidbit at you. Playbill reported in February of 2021 that Paramount was developing a new film adaptation of the property, but there have been zero updates since then. Pretty telling, right? Okay, now it's time to talk about the score. I realize this isn't the best way to begin our deconstruction of the score, but it can't be helped. We simply must hear Martin Sheen as the Kula Ohm on the 1992 Studio Cast album. For your reference, this is from the Welcome to Bangkok track. Man is Lung Tang, emissary from Court of Burma. He bring present to King from Prince of Burma. Her name is Top Tim. That girl is a present for King. King is pleased with her. You're doing an amazing job, Marty. I love how you sound like Sitting Bull and an android from the year 3999. How much did they pay you for this, Marty? Did you waive your usual fee? Were you content to tuck in with craft services once the deed was done? Did you and Roger Moore go nuts at the after party? You hack! I 
That was Hello, Young Lovers from the 1977 Broadway revival cast album as performed by Constance Towers. Hello, Young Lovers does more to endear us to Anna than any proto-lonely goat herd number ever could. Okay, so she whistles in the face of fear. That's cool. The subject she likes best is getting to know me. Fine. But this right here is where the marrow of her character lies, and if you cannot tap into it as an actor, you are doomed. Anna has lost the great love of her life, a devastating experience by any measure, yet she refuses to buckle under the weight of grief. She moves forward because she must, not only for Louis's sake, but for her own. What is she going to do? Drop dead the moment her world is turned upside down? That's the king's job. It brings Anna comfort to know she and Tom will forever have a place in the pantheon of lovers, and she encourages young couples to hold on to each other for as long as they can. This is quality advice. Do I think the act two reprise of Hello, Young Lovers makes Anna appear... Eh, just a little narcissistic? Sure I do. Don't cry, young lovers. Whatever you do, don't cry because I'm alone. All of my memories are happy tonight. I've had a love of my own like yours. I've had a love of my own. Tuptim and Lunta are holding on by the skin of their teeth. Lady, lady, they are going through it. This ain't about you. Patty, Benny, could we hear that part of March of the Siamese Children? where the orchestra goes full Horatio Hornblower on our asses. I like to refer to this as the Horatio Hornblower section because those horns are blowing, man, yeah! For the record, this is from the 1996 Broadway revival cast album. I promised you that the horns would blow you away, and did they not? If they didn't, hey, I'm not giving you your money back, all right? Let's continue with a puzzlement. When it comes to talking about a puzzlement, I think we should hear Yul Brenner's performance from the 1951 original Broadway cast album, followed by his performance from the 1977 Broadway revival cast album, Brenner was in his early 30s when he first recorded this number, which would put him in his late uh, 50s, yes, by 1977. Let's hear those two performances back-to-back. But no matter what I think, I must go on living life. As leader of my kingdom, I must go forth. Be father to my children and husband to each wife, etc., etc., and so forth. If my Lord in heaven Buddha show the way, I try to live another day If my Lord in heaven Buddha show the way Every day I do my best For one more day But Is a puzzlement But no matter what I think I must go living life As leader of my kingdom I must go forth be father to my children and husband to each wife, etc., etc., and so forth. If my Lord in heaven would I show the way, every day I try to live another day. If my Lord in heaven would 
us more. Who, who, who? Yul Brenner, the bossy baritone bottom, or Yul Brenner, the cranky baritone butch? Cast your votes. We need you to Pokemon go to the polls. Here's a puzzlement for you. Why is a puzzlement the only honest-to-goodness number for the king? So big a world is a minor dramatic monologue set to music. Song of the King is nothing more than a prelude to Shall We Dance, and that number only barely qualifies as a duet. Song of the King is... So awful, I would believe Rogers and Hammerstein wrote it under duress. Oh, you want more material for the king? Here you go. It's called Song of the Fucking King, and it's one minute long. Roger and Hammy go home now. Next up, getting to know you from the 1992 studio cast album. This is Julie Andrews. She's on deck. Let's hear it. Julie. Getting to know. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy. Because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hold you like me, getting to know you, putting it my way but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy. Because of all the beautiful and new things. When Rogers and Hammerstein were searching for a song that would brighten Anna's character, Mary Martin, always the mensch, reminded them of Suddenly Lucky, a song that had been cut during the development of South Pacific. Can we stop to acknowledge how much of an impact Martin had on today's subject? 
I suspect Rogers and Hammerstein would have given her the role of Anna were it not for Fanny and Gertrude calling the shots. But isn't it strange how she never stepped in as a replacement or led a revival? Another puzzlement, huh? Getting to know you is unforgettable from the moment you first hear it. To say the song is merely catchy would be an insult to the otherworldly object Rogers and Hammerstein gave birth to so many years ago. This song does not live in your head rent-free. It convinces you to sell your head at a loss so it can turn your head into an Airbnb. And guess who's paying to stay at the Airbnb? You! The song is now your landlord! I do find it ironic how this number is all about Anna establishing a rapport with the king's children, and we never learn any of their names, save for Prince Chulalongkorn. We might learn one other name, but that's a big might. I'll tell you what this musical needs. Fa Ying! In the original memoir, Fa Ying is presented as King Monku's most beloved daughter. She died at a young age, I want to say around six or seven, and Anna claims to have openly wept with the king when she passed. That is one hell of a moment right there. Why is that not in the show? You know what I wouldn't put in the show? The moment when Anna mocks Fa Ying's memorial service as a pathetic melodrama fit only for barbarians. Remember, the real Anna Lena Owens was a mighty, mighty piece of shit. So big a world. Siam, very small. England, very small. All people very small. No man big enough to be alone. No man big enough. King different. King need no one, nobody at all. That was Christopher Lee performing So Big a World on the 1994 Studio Cast album. I gotta say, Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee, you are really giving it the old college try. And by that I mean you have quite obviously arrived late, hungover, and with next to zero reference for the material. Were you playing D&D with your roommates until 4 a.m. again? Did you eat cigarettes and pizza combos for breakfast? I'm not upset, Christopher, just... Uh, disappointed. I expected more from the man who played Fu Manchu no less than five times. Where is he? Where is that man? What happened to him? We kiss in a shadow.
sunlight and say to the sky, behold and believe what you see. Richard Rogers was not a fan of Thai or otherwise Asian music. He experimented, quote-unquote, with it while writing Chi-Chi with Lawrence Hart in the late 20s. I'm not sure how Larry felt about Asian music. He was probably too busy buying lifts for his shoes. That's what Hollywood taught us, right? That Larry was obsessed with his height and not his latent homosexuality. Look up the film Words and Music, people. It's demented. But back to Richard Rogers. Can you tell he's uninterested in Thai music? Did the Easter sponge cake wonder bread under-seasoned deviled egg sensibility that informs we kiss in a shadow give it away? Yeah, sure, these characters are from Burma, but wouldn't it be great if Loon Ta and Tup Tim sounded like a Canadian Mountie and a New England debutante? Thai costumes and scenery, yes, so colorful. Thai music, hard pass, so annoying. You may have noticed how, for the original Broadway cast recording, Tup Tim simply repeats Loon Ta word for word. Insightful, right? The song's so nice we sing them twice is a prevailing attitude throughout this version of the show. And though subsequent revivals have attempted to turn Shadow into more of a conversation, results have varied. Just think, if Hammerstein had bothered to write original lyrics, original thoughts for Tup Tim back in 1951, I wouldn't be complaining in the year of our Lord, 2024. What was stopping you, Oscar? Did you simply wish to extend the length of the number in the laziest way possible? 
servant, your servant. Indeed, I'm not your servant, although you give me less than servants pay. I'm a free and independent employee, employee. Because I'm a woman, you think like every woman, I have to be a slave or concubine. You conceited, self-indulgent, libertine, libertine. How I wish I'd told him that, right to his face. Libertine, and while we're on the subject, sire, there are certain goings-on around this place that I wish to tell you I do not admire. I do not like polygamy or even moderate bigamy. I realize that in your eyes this clearly makes a prigamy. But I am from a civilized land called Wales, where men like you are kept in county jails. In your pursuit of pleasure, you have mistresses who treasure you. They have no ken of other men beside whom they can measure you. A flock of sheep and you the only ram. No wonder you're the wonder of Siam. Your servant, your servant. Indeed, I'm not your servant. Although you give me less than servant's pay. Gertrude, would you, would you like to do another take? Listening to Gertrude Lawrence cringe and lunge her way through Shall I Tell You What I Think of You is not my idea of a good time. This is from the original Broadway cast recording. The treatment she received from Rogers and Hammerstein was abominable, but now, now I see, I now see where their hesitation stemmed from. Lawrence sounds uncomfortable in every way that counts. Too conservative and protected to deliver the emotional nakedness this number demands. As a foundation upon which others would inevitably build and improve, she's fine. I, I She's fine, I suppose. But taken on its own, this is a fairly startling blat of a performance. Why is Lawrence's interpretation of Anna erotically stimulated by the idea of a kick to the pants? There's a moment where she pretends to be kicked in the butt by the king, and she goes, Oh! Oh! That was good, your majesty! This woman is thirsty for a royal boot up the ass, and I considered putting together a mashup of this moment from all seven of the cast albums I listened to, but I simply don't have the, that kind of time. I, I don't. I, I do not. I don't. Oh! Oh, that was good, your majesty. was good, your majesty. Oh, oh, that was good, your majesty. Whoa, oh, that was good, your majesty. Oh, that was good, your majesty. That was good, your majesty. Oh, that was good, your majesty. Does anyone else think Donna Murphy is channeling Tim Curry? Two more thoughts regarding this number. Number one, aren't you glad they preserved that bit about the toads from the memoir? Toads! Toads! toads. All, All of your people, people are toads! toads. 
Jones. Classic racist Anna. Number two. While swearing she would never bow before a king, Anna should notice a portrait of King Edward VII on her nightstand. She will then turn the portrait away before returning to her rant. Oh, so funny. Yes, I am wearing my director's cap once more. If we cannot find at least one moment to laugh about Anna's hypocrisies, why bother producing The King and I in the first place? Note, we should not be producing The King and I. people funny would be a more effective rebuke of Western imperialism if it did not sound like a Gilbert and Sullivan B-side. White people writing for Thai characters who are often played by non-Thai actors, characters who resent white people for asking them to conform to white standards. Now that I find funny. So ironic. So ironic. Ironic. Ruthie Ann Mills and the company of the 2015 Broadway revival heard only moments ago successfully managed to apply the claw and fang quality that has been missing from this material since 1951. As Lady Tiang, Mills, and that might be pronounced as Miles or Miles, I, again, I, I, I apologize for the mispronunciations, uh, she is nothing short of a marvel, her voice dripping with resentment, even as she holds those gorgeous feathers light notes. Oh, these women are putting Richard and Oscar's ambitions to shame. Oh my god. I have dreamed that your arms are lovely. I have dreamed what a joy you'll be. 
quick reference that was I Have Dreamed from the 1964 Lincoln Center cast album. I Have Dreamed is quite possibly the best love song Rodgers and Hammerstein ever wrote and most definitely one of the best love songs in the canon of musical theater. When you first begin to learn about musicals, people tell you that the characters only begin to sing when words are no longer enough. Words are insufficient. Their emotions have become so powerful that they must be expressed through song. I Have Dreamed is the perfect example of this age-old concept. Who would want to watch this as a book scene? Nobody! In 
in these dreams I've loved you so That by now I think I know What it's like to be loved by you Loved by you I will love being loved by you Oh, that interjection, that loved by you Gets me every time, gets my goat every time That's the good stuff That shit has no expiration date If you want hokey old hat vocals Paired with racist malarkey Fast forward a couple of years And try on kismet for size You know who doesn't bother to do the Loved by you interjection? Peebo Bryson, you're a coward, Peebo A coward Tangent! The following is a quote from Peebo Bryson regarding his performance of Beauty and the Beast at the 1992 Academy Awards. Quote, What I did not get was when there was a lot of opposition to us doing the Oscars. Celine and I doing the Oscars. Angela Lansbury wanted to sing the song herself. You're a teapot. I'm sorry, let's be honest. She's a teapot! What's she gonna wear? A teapot outfit out on the stage at the Oscars? In the animation itself, within the structure, it works perfectly. It's okay. You can take liberties vocally in theater. She took liberties in Sweeney Todd. I'm not mad at you for that, but this is totally different. This is not Sweeney Todd. With her as a teapot, I think it is really appropriate, but there's a difference between singing a song as a teapot, Sweeney Todd, and singing a song at the Oscars that was recorded by two honest-to-goodness great vocalists. And there's a difference between those three things. I mean, there's a lot of difference. So to appease her, they let her come out and sing a verse, and then we came out and sang the real version. Quote, What is wrong with this man? What? Stop saying teapot so many times, you buffoon. <laughs> All right, moving on. Topsy glad that Simon die. Topsy dance for joy. I tell you, what Harriet Beecher Stowe say that Topsy say... I specs, I's the wickedest critter in the world. But I do not believe Topsy is wicked critter, because I too am glad for death of king, of any king who pursues a slave who is unhappy and wish to join her lover. And your majesty, I wish to say to you, your Majesty, and honorable guests, I will tell you end of story is very sad ending. Buddha has saved Eliza, but with the blessings of Buddha also comes sacrifice. wish that Eva come to him and thank him personally for saving of Eliza and baby. And so she die and go to arms of Buddha.
That was a sample of the small house of Uncle Thomas has performed on the 2015 Broadway revival cast album. During her performance of The Small House of Uncle Thomas, Ashley Park taps into the frustration and rage simmering below Tuptim's cool demeanor. It's unlikely Tuptim will ever have this chance again. The opportunity to do what everyone in Siam wants to do, namely stand before the king and tell him exactly what they think. That she ultimately and instantly crumbles in the face of the king's dismissal is more of a tragedy than the death of Lun Ta. Watch out, I I'm wearing my director's cap again. Oh no. Tup Tim should pronounce words like Kentucky and Ohio in keeping with her European audience. She put a lot of thought into this adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. This woman wants to be taken seriously, needs to be taken seriously, because she is fighting for her life through art. And if the audience, your actual theater-goer audience, laughs upon hearing Ohio, pronounced as Ohio, it will tear the guts right out of this sequence. You're, you're throwing the drama right out of the fucking window. No one should be laughing at Tub Tim. Don't give them the opportunity. It's not a laugh line, you fucks. A reminder, we should not be producing The King and I. Uh, okay, so we have one more song that we want to feature here. This is Shall We Dance from the 1951 original Broadway cast album. Let's go! We've just been introduced. I do not know you well. But when the music started, something drew me to your side. So many men and girls are in each other's arms. It made me think we might be similarly occupied. Shall we dance on a bright cloud of music? Shall we fly? Shall we dance? Shall we then say goodnight and mean goodbye? Or perchance, when the last little star has left the sky, shall we still be together with our arms about each other? And shall you be my new romance? On the clear understanding that this kind of Shall we dance? Shall we Oh, 
When the last little star has left the sky Shall we still be together with our arms above each other And shall you be my new romance On the clear understanding that this kind of thing can happen Shall we dance, shall we dance, shall we dance what Shall We Dance flows right into Eglantine from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Check this out. Shall we dance? Dun 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 dun. On a bright cloud of music shall we fly? Dun 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 dun. So I humbly suggest you accept my behest. I'm your man. Dun 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 dun. Eglantine, Eglantine, oh how you'll shine. Your lot and my lot have got to combine. Eglantine, Eglantine, hark to the stars. Destiny calls us, the future is ours. I had to sing the whole thing because it really ain't Eglantine unless you get to the part about destiny. Destiny calls us, the future is ours. David Tomlinson. You are the best. You are the goat. Okay, that's all I have to say regarding the score of The King and I. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Push up every morning, 10 times push up, starting low. Once more on the rise, nuts to the flabby guys. No, you chicken fat, go away. Go, you chicken fat, go. Good morning, hands on hips, please. Now then, touch your toes with me. Ready, touchdown. me, Robert Preston, in 1962, singing the song Chicken Fat, a song written by my old buddy Meredith Wilson. <laughs> you know, I've been dead for a while now, and I no longer care about your chicken fat. If you want to have chicken fat on your body, your bones, what do I care? My concern now is energy. Pep! Pep is the name of the game, and five, six, seven, eight to-go pouches are the way to go. But you need to know how to consume them properly. So I want you to follow me, listen to my directions, and repeat these exercises. Oh, this is the only way that you're ever going to be able to consume five, six, seven, eight to-go pouch coffee in the right way. Now, march, march, march to the pantry. That's right, march. March! March to the pantry and open the door. Open the pantry door and three and four. Reach for the door and five and six. Four more reaches. Seven, eight, and nine and ten. Okay, the door's open. Congratulations. Now I want you to reach up. Extend those arms up and reach. And uh, two 
handed. Three for the box, a four of to go, a five, six, seven, eight, to go pouches. What number are we on? Oh no, oh my god. Okay, let's say you have it. Congratulations, my, my sweet listener. Now lift, ah, lift that pouch out of the box and four and five and six. And let's say you have it on eight. Okay, and tear it, tear it. Tear that pouch open, kids, tear it. Rip it, make sure they hear you grunt, grunt, grunt. When you tear that pouch open, grunt, grunt. And chug, throw it back, chug. Throw it back, kids, chug. Throw it back and get that delicious coffee and chug it. Chug it, yes, <laughs> you've done it. Oh, great job, kids. Great job, listeners. And remember, the devil snatches you when you're too tired to pay attention. I should know. Five, six, seven, eight, don't go away. Five, six, seven, eight, do go. <laughs> final thoughts regarding the king and I. I have no final thoughts, none. Not a zip. Zilcherino. Now, as a reminder, the King and I won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1952. The additional nominees? Huh? We have no idea what those what those shows would have been. Those details were kept from us. Now, here is a list of eligible musicals from that 1951-1952 Broadway season. We start with Three Wishes for Jamie, which ran for 92 performances, booked by Charles O'Neill and Abe Burroughs. Abe Burroughs? Isn't that the author of Cactus Flower? Hold on, I'm gonna go all the way back to the top of my notes here. Cactus Flower, Cactus Flower, where is that? Yes, Abe Burroughs, my God. All right, okay. The music and lyrics of Three Wishes for Jamie, those were written by Ralph Blaine, and the basis for this show was O'Neill's 1949 novel, The Three Wishes of Jamie McGruin. When the Queen of the Fairies offers to grant three wishes to Jamie McGruin, the Irishman wishes for travel, a bride, and a son who can speak Gaelic. Okay, now we have a reference for that. How about Seventeen, which ran for 182 performances, book by Sally Benson, music by Walter Kent, lyrics by Kim Gannon. The basis, a series of short stories written by Booth Tarkington and published by Metropolitan Magazine beginning in 1914. Collectively, the stories were known as Seventeen, A Tale of Youth and Summertime, and The Baxter Family, especially William. <laughs> I don't know if that's Seventeen, A Tale of Youth and Summertime, and The Baxter Family, especially William. I don't know if that's a title. The musical chronicles the romance of 17-year-old Willie Baxter and his best girl, Lola Pratt. Sounds, uh, pretty boring, I won't lie. How about the musical Top Banana, which ran for 350 performances, book by High Craft, music and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Oh, Johnny, hello again. Blendo soap spokesman Jerry Biffle, as played by Phil Silvers, invites Sally Peters, a department store model, to join his television ensemble. Jerry loves Sally, but Sally is in love with Cliff, another member of the ensemble. Shenanigans! I've got two more musicals here for you. We have two on the aisle that ran for 276 performances. Music by Julie Stein and lyrics and sketches by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Comden and Green had just found great success in Hollywood with Singing in the Rain and The Bandwagon. Two 
on the Isle served as their triumphant return to Broadway, with Bert Lahr serving as their star. He served, baby! I should say this was more of a review than a uh, traditional book musical. And finally, we have Paint Your Wagon, arguably the most famous of all of these shows, which ran for 289 performances, book by Alan J. Lerner, music by Frederick Lowe, lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Paint Your Wagon follows the trials and tribulations of Gold Rush-era miners as they seek their fortunes in California. I've seen the movie, and it ain't good. Uh, did any of these shows deserve to win Best Musical over The King and I? I have no idea. I own cast recordings for all of these musicals, save for 17, but I've never sat with them and could not find time to do so in the lead-up to this recording. Not even paint your wagon, Jonathan. Not even paint your wagon. Can you believe it? Ah, fuck it. Top Banana is taking the medallion. I feel contrarian. I feel chaotic. I am nothing if not chaotic. Ha ha ha! It is now time to rank The King and I against all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to take a look at this complete ranking of ours, our ranked list, oh, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, access our link tree via the pinned post you'll find there, and go to our spreadsheet. Go to the spreadsheet. The second tab will provide all of that ranking info. The King and I is going to land at number 61 between Sunset Boulevard at 60 and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum at number 62. I know I said that we should never produce this show. It's it's weird, right, that it's this high. Uh, well, what can you do? Again, I am a man of chaotic impulses. Ah, there you go. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, we begin with uh, an appearance from Yul Brenner on the game show What's My Line. This is from Season 8, Episode 19, original air date, January 6th, 1957, on CBS. If you've never seen an episode of What's My Line, celebrities like Yul Brenner would come on to the show and they would answer yes or no questions uh, posited by a panel of guests. And the guests were blindfolded. They did not know who they were talking to, so the yes or no questions helped them to identify the person, the celebrity, that was seated before them. That was the whole point. All you had to do was try to figure out who you were talking to. Now, for some reason, Yule has chosen to whistle his answers instead of providing a clear yes or no. So you might notice a, a bit of uh, annoyed tension between the hosts, uh, between the host and the, the panelists. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you'll pick up on that like I did. Let's hear that audio. Have you won any uh, of the year's top awards from any of these committees that are giving out prizes all over the place? <laughs> Don't know. Is that a yes? Yes, yes that's right. Miss Francis? That's a yes? Yeah. I'm going to ask uh, our guest to use his voice hereafter, because I think perhaps we ought to give you a break. Do you have blonde curly hair? <laughs> one of the first television shows Mary and I ever did called The Star Club, and is your name Yule Brenner? Yeah. <laughs> Our second piece of ephemera is Sesame Street. Oh, it's Sesame Street Monsterpiece Theater. This is from season 21, episode 2727 of Sesame Street. Original air date, April 17th, 1990. Let's hear it, baby. I want to hear that cookie monster. 
evening. Alistair Cookie here. Welcome to Monsterpiece Theater. Tonight, me bring you classic musical called The King and I. It's about the king and the letter I. That's where they get the title from. Very good title. And now, sit back and enjoy The King and I. Oh, you lowercase letter I. You are so cute with your little dot. And you start words that I love, like igloo, ink, ice cream, and so on, etc., etc., etc. And because of this, your lovable and cute king wishes to dance with you. and I. Short, but so what? This Alistair Cookie saying bye-bye from Monsterpiece Theater. The exaggerated bum 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 is amusing to me. Na 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 bum bum bum. It's it's very funny to me. And I love that coda from Cookie Monster. And so end the king and I. Short but so what? I love you, Cookie Monster. I want to talk a little bit about The King and I, Animated Thinking Adventure. This is from 1999. It's a PC game published by Sound Source Software for Windows and Macintosh. And the copy on the box says, quote, challenging games and activities that build critical thinking skills. Quote, okay, games and activities. What do we have? Well, we have Prince's Practice Match, which is basically Street Fighter for babies. We have Louis's Floating Fireworks. Anna's Umbrella Game, which is a... Anna's Umbrella Game. It's, it's basically a matching game. Anna says, Anna says this a lot. Find the fish. Find the fish. She says that a lot. We have the King's Printing Press, where you can make cards for Mommy or Nana. Happy Thanksgiving, Mommy or Nana. Please forgive me, is, is something you could say in, 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 your, in your card. Top Tim's Mixed Up Music. Where you, where you sort of untangle music for Tup Tim. You know how Tup Tim really loves music, right? What about Rama's Hot Air Rescue? What about Master Little's Jug-O-Gems? His Jug-O-Gems, motherfucker. <laughs> Master Little catching some dumbass gems with his jug. And then Tusker's Fruit Launch. Uh, Tusker is an elephant who has, I don't believe he has his tusks anymore, in a very weird nod to ivory hunting. That animated film is so bad, you have to listen to us do a commentary on it. It's going to be so much fun. Who received this game for Christmas on their birthday? Uh, no. Who received this for Christmas or their birthday, and how did they exact their revenge? 
because you just gotta. This is a this is a terrible gift for any kid. And then my final piece of ephemera is a transcription I wrote out from the book Not Since Carrie by Ken Mandelbaum. This is a fantastic book. I've owned this for years. It's all about musical flops, and this is a direct uh, a quotation from that book, okay? You love it when I read to you. Quote, in 1974, 55-year-old Yul Brenner decided it was time to find another musical vehicle, his last Broadway appearance having been in The King and I. Brenner tossed in his lot with three of the more flop-prone figures in the modern musical, director Albert Mayer, actress Joan Digne, and composer Mitch Lee. Lee wrote the score, Mayer directed, and Digne co-starred with Brenner in a show originally called Odyssey, loosely based on Homeric legend. Brimmer was Odysseus, and Digne, surrounded by beefy suitors, was the long-suffering Penelope back in Ithaca. With book and lyrics by Eric Segal of Love Story fame and a relatively small cast of 18, Odyssey began a year-long tour in December of 1974. Brenner's hotel and dressing room accommodation list became an industry joke. Every dressing room had to be painted a particular shade of brown, and every hotel suite kitchen had to be stocked in advance with, quote, one dozen brown eggs. Under no circumstances, white ones, quote, the tour was beset with litigation and unhappiness. In April of 1975, Brenner, Digne, and Mayer filed a $7.5 million suit against Trader Vic's restaurant in New York, where the three and Brenner's wife, Jacqueline, had dined just prior to commencing the tour. They alleged that the spare ribs they consumed that evening were, quote, poisonous, quote, causing them to fall, quote, ill, weak, and infirm, quote, and forcing Brenner and Digne to miss shows. Mayer claimed he had been, quote, unable to perform his theatrical work with his accustomed energy and vigor, quote, and Jacqueline averred that she sustained an, quote, impaired and depreciated, quote, marital association with her husband as a result of the tainted ribs. Uh, side note for me, in other words, I couldn't fuck him, Your Honor. I was too sick. Oh my god, back to the passage. When Denier's name was, contrary to contractual stipulation, left off the marquee of the Colonial Theater in Boston, she insisted that the marquee be shrouded in black, causing some theatergoers to believe that Brenner had died. In August, Brenner sued to terminate his contract, but was threatened with a $1 million damage claim if he should leave the show. In November, when producer Roger L. Stevens decided to close the show in California, Brenner did an about-face and threatened to walk out of the current engagement if the show was not brought to New York. Renamed Home Sweet Homer and billed as a, quote, <laughs> a musical romantic comedy, quote, fair enough, the show opened and closed on a single Sunday matinee. Brenner took up the role of the King of Siam immediately after Homer folded and continued to play it for the rest of his life. His final tour in the part was produced and directed by Home Sweet Homer composer Mitch Lee. Quote, that's it. That's all I have for you. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Random Number Generator, I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show. Puppy Chow presents the Rabid Knights of Benji, Presidential Assassin. Everyone ready? Then away we go! The next 
next subject of our main feed coverage was the 1989 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran on Broadway for 633 performances, and the name of that show is Jerome Robbins Broadway. Oh, Jerome Robbins, you sly dog making me talk about your ass all over again. You devil, you little scamp. Okay, that episode is going to drop January 24th. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. I am going to skip our usual Patreon breakdown because this episode is going to be a beast. I already know that, but I do want to I do want to provide you with our verbal shoutouts. If you donate at least $1 a month via Patreon, you get a verbal shoutout each and every week. Thank you so much for donating. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher Neal, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shianti, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. I don't want to forget to plug this one more time. $1 a month patrons also have access to 19 bonus episodes, and our 20th bonus episode is going to be that commentary for The King and I, the 1999 animated film. That will drop on January 17th, and we will release another bonus episode via this Patreon tier after we produce five more main feed episodes, okay? All right, keep your ears open. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny all the way out there in Chicago in the Stage Left studio. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Ah, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. Master Little will need help to collect all falling royal gems. You can use mouse to glide back and forth cross screen to get royal gems. Don't let any of them fall to ground or you will lose tooth. The round is over when you've lost all your teeth. Ha <laughs> ha! Or you have collected the proper number of royal gems. Finish three rounds to complete level. Try higher level for more challenge. Ha <laughs> ha!
Miami Press. Good job. Good, good, good. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good, good, good. Good job.